Hey everyone, this is Andrew Johnson. And this is Jake Reiner. And you're listening to No Contest, a Noal Studio podcast. A series of conversations with placemakers on the stuff that makes us human and the stuff that humans make. Hey everyone, we're speaking today with Michael Israel. Michael is a serial entrepreneur disrupting multifamily real estate and leading investments in early stage tech startups. He's one of the most interesting, passionate, and insightful entrepreneurs that we've had the pleasure to work with and call our friend. Michael, it's always good to see you. Welcome to No Contest. What's up, guys? How you doing? Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. We're doing well. Um, it's a it's another unpredictable uh, rainy day here in Chicago. And uh, for the listeners, um, I joked a little bit about Andrew's fall plaid shirt which is uh out of season and looks like he's trying out for the band nirvana um i'm trying i'm trying to rush rush to fall quicker we can get there the better uh michael we've got a lot to cover a lot of awesome topics today uh pretty excited about this conversation um but before we get into all those it would be great if you could just give the listeners a little background on yourself where did you grow up what was your family like etc Definitely. So uh, I grew up in Northbrook, Illinois, suburb outside of Chicago. Um, went to Glenbrook North High School, and then I went to Indiana University in Bloomington. Uh, traditional family, uh, older sister, two years older, uh, much smarter, prettier version of myself. She's a lawyer. Um, parents, uh, my mom is uh, 100% Greek, so you know she's uh, first generation. Uh, and my dad is... Uh, a Jew from uh, Skokie, so it's it's definitely an interesting, <laughs> oh, de- de- nice. yeah, de- definitely an interesting combination there. Um, but yeah, I grew up in Northbrook and uh, ended up, you know, in Bloomington, Indiana. Followed in my sister's footsteps, and you know, ended up back in Chicago after school. That's great. I can imagine like really big uh, family holidays with a lot of really good food and um, people shouting shouting at each other across the the table. Oh yeah, definitely on both sides. On both sides, it, it's. Family is, is always an interesting dynamic. So uh, lucky to have some really great parents and, and a great sister. So uh, it has been, a, I definitely had a great childhood. That's for sure. That's cool. That's cool. So um, one, you know, of the many things that are so interesting about you and um, one of them is that you got into real estate through a completely different industry and, and journey, um, meaning that you bring a lot of unique angles to prop tech, consumer experience, brand, and, and so much more. Um, can you just talk us through your professional journey and kind of where you are today? Yeah, definitely. So I, I definitely had a more unconventional come up um, as it relates to my professional career. Uh, I, I think the first thing that should be noted is, you know, I was half a credit away from failing out of high school. Uh, a lot of people don't know that. It's not something that I typically advertise. But, uh, you know, it, it wasn't um, necessarily because of, you know, a lack of knowledge or because, you know, I tried really hard and just failed. I literally, I literally do not remember opening up a book in high school. Um, I, I was the type of uh, kid that, you know, I, I was never a bad student in the sense of like I, I wasn't a troublemaker. I just really didn't have the motivation. Um, I was the type of kid where, you know, I'd play football, basketball or baseball, and I intentionally wouldn't turn my jersey in at the end of the season because I knew if I didn't turn my jersey in, then they wouldn't send my report card home. So my, <laughs> my, my, my parents, my parents would be like, yo, like, where's where's your report card? And I'd be like, I don't know, must have gotten lost in the mail. And they for sure knew that I was totally full of shit. But uh, they also knew that, like, they couldn't really force the, um, you know, 
the the motivation that my sister had on me um, when she was my age. Uh, you know, I think they might have had this blind faith that uh, hopefully one day I would evolve and and grow up. Um, and fortunately, I kind of did. I won't say that I'm I'm for sure 100 mature adult yet, but but I'm getting there. Um, but you know, it was interesting. Um, after obviously with such a poor GPA. Um, you know, I'll tell you a little story. It was uh, the day of graduation practice at, at GBN and my guidance counselor walked up to me and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Michael, he said, I didn't think you were going to make it. And I thought he was kidding because like, I really didn't know that you could fail out of high school. Right. Uh, but he was being dead serious. So uh, what ended up happening, I obviously didn't get into any, co- I only applied to one school, Indiana. I knew I wasn't going to get in. So I ended up going um, to a community college for my first year, um, but in Bloomington, Indiana. So IU, my sister was there, obviously. Me and my friends had visited all the time. A lot of my friends ended up getting directly admitted into IU. So I went to a school there called Ivy Tech for a year. And I think what you know was one of the more defining parts of my college experience was that while I was at this community college in Bloomington, I was still able to rush uh, ATO, which is an Indiana fraternity, uh, technically not legal. Um, but because my sister, uh, you know, was friendly with all of those guys and I had known them from visiting all the time. They were like, Hey, listen, just like, you know, just don't, if anybody asks, just tell them you go here. Right. Like in terms of like my pledge class and things like that. And, uh, ATO, the fraternity that I was in is, is known for having one of the toughest pledge ships on campus. We had a seven month, you know, sober pledge ship. We weren't allowed to go out. We had to do security every night. It was pretty brutal. Um, and, you know, I think, again, one of the defining parts was that at the beginning of the pledge ship, uh, the pledge class votes on a president and vice president. And my peers elected me to be president of my pledge class, which is comical if you think about it. I didn't even go to the school. And then, you know, <laughs> so good. and then if you look at if <laughs> you all it, kind it, of reminding me of old school, I, I'm wondering if like maybe you had some influence yeah, on that. Yeah, right. Like it, uh, it, it, it definitely and it was, you know, obviously the first real leadership position I ever had outside of sports. So, um, you know, it, it really it, it empowered me in the sense that um, I was like, wow, you know, I I, I really enjoyed um, being in a leadership role. I really enjoyed, you know, almost I, I won't say being admired by my peers, but the fact that 39 other guys in my pledge class voted me to be their president um, really meant a lot to me. Um, obviously, it's a whole frat bro type of thing where it didn't mean much in the real world at the time. But in terms of really flipping on that switch from wanting to accomplish and be known for, um, you know, things outside of, you know, sports and more so in terms of whether it be academic accomplishments or professional accomplishments, that's really kind of where things um, started to change. Um, And, you know, how that impacted my professional career is that in college, uh, I really recognized, especially after transferring into IU, that I was never going to stand out from my peers because of my grades. It didn't matter if I studied for eight months or eight hours, I was always going to get like a B or B plus at best. Um, so I, I knew that I had to have another angle and I decided that it was going to be my network. I decided I was going to have a really good network of whether it be mentors, just friends, whatever you want to call it. And what I would do is I would come home um, from school every summer in Chicago and I would do a bunch of research, whether it was the typical 40 under 40 list, whether it was, you know, the fast 100, whatever it may be. And I would cold email um, a bunch of different CEOs, founders, business type people 
And I would have a really straightforward, simple email that would just say, hey, you know, I'm 19 years old. I don't want anything from you. I just want to buy you a cup of coffee and pick your brain. Uh, I did that every year that I came home from school. And it paid so many dividends and still does to this day. I still maintain a lot of those relationships. Um, but what it taught me was that, you know, everybody, regardless of how successful, how famous, how big they are, they're really all just one email away, right? We're all very connected. So uh, the first company that I co-founded out of college was a company called Mobile X Labs um, with my co-founder, Dan Navias and, and Karen Panacer, who are both based here um, in Chicago. And, you know, I was wrapping up my senior year of school uh, and Dan had graduated a year before me. So he was already in Chicago. And we're on the phone talking about this idea that he had, um, what essentially was a software platform that allowed anybody to create their own mobile app without having to know how to code or spend a lot of money. Um, and the amateur entrepreneurs that we were at the time, especially myself, I'm on the phone with Dan. The day we decide to pursue this idea, I was like, you know what? I was like, I've never pitched Mark anything. And, and for those listening, I'm referring to Mark Cuban, who I had built a relationship with during my uh, senior year of school. And I never pitched him anything, never asked for an investment. And I told this to Dan on the phone. And I was like, maybe I should pitch him this. And he's like, oh, yeah, man, that's an awesome idea. Like, let's do it. Literally the day that we decide to, like, pursue this idea. We're not incorporated. We don't have a prototype. We don't even have wireframes. So I emailed Mark, um, made him a little pitch, and he responded back. And he just said, you know what? I don't know anything about the space, but I'll do it just because it's you. Um, and obviously, awesome. yeah, and obviously, you know, being able to come back to Chicago after school with Mark's name attached um, to our startup, uh, you know, it, it gave us a lot of um, validation that especially at our age at the time, being 22 years old, uh, would have been extremely hard uh, to get at that specific point in time. So, uh, yeah, we ended up scaling that, that company. The goal was obviously to democratize the app store. And we ended up, you know, licensing out and, and selling that company and then, you know, evolving into native mobile where we built our own apps and games in-house. And this is really where I started working with digital influencers. So some of the world's biggest gamers, um, you know, at the time, Viners, which is now TikTok, um, Instagrammers, you name it, uh, in the world to launch a number of different apps, games, projects, and things like that. So that's really where I got exposed into the digital marketing game, the growth hacking, um, you know, trying to get, you know, organic downloads to become the number one downloaded app in the Apple store. Um, and it was obviously a really incredible experience. Um, and then, you know, I, I ended up stepping away from uh, Mobile X Labs or, or Native, which is now Current. Current is still killing it today, based in Chicago, raised a $37 million ICO in 2018. And wow. now, they're, now they're just on an absolute tier. But I uh, ended up deciding to uh, start a consumer electronics startup called Bump Out. Um, my co-founder and I had developed a portable Bluetooth speaker that could attach to any phone, any flat surface. Um, and we created this proprietary patented expansion system where you could press a button on the speaker and the speaker would expand via motor and it would create an internal acoustic chamber, therefore generating more sound and powerful bass. Um, and that company and venture probably took, I don't know, like 20 years off my life in terms of the stress and the complications and the challenges that just come with uh, manufacturing and developing a physical product overseas. It was absolutely brutal. Um, and then, yeah, that's kind of how I segued into, into the real estate world after um, the bump out, the consumer electronics venture, uh, which, you know, was almost like an organic involvement in the sense that 
uh, and I know I'm rambling on here, so I'll, I'll cut off after this line, but um, my family is in real estate, real estate family. I'd always wanted to go into real estate, just never, you know, could, I just have always kind of wanted to do my own, do it my own way. Um, and then I've always known that there's a really big opportunity for tech advancement in real estate, but I had always known there'd been a big resistance to tech as well. And uh, it didn't really seem up until the past few years, I'd say uh, the stepping stone was really when Google acquired Nest. But now you're looking at these big prop tech acquisitions and things like that. In the past couple of years, tech has really been, um, I wouldn't say widely accepted in real estate, but we're getting there. Um, so I was, I was brought on by uh, Noah Gottlieb and a company called The X Company, um, which is a spinoff from Property Markets Group PMG to be the director of innovation and lead innovation there, uh, which is a role that I held for about a year and a half before leaving to, to start uh, a, a new venture in prop tech. Man, that's awesome. I actually didn't know the full depth of your background and I, it makes sense. Like all the, you know, the way that you see the world is, is definitely in line with the way that, that we try to see the world, which is, um, to, to be, to be, uh, to be trite is through no walls, right? It's like, you don't see walls in front of you. You, you see things from different angles and, um, you just have a, a different way of perceiving, um, what is possible. And um, it's very admirable and it seems like you've gone through just wildly different industries. Um, but the, the theme or the through line is in all of those scenarios, you're trying to kind of push the envelope of what's possible, um, change the world for the better and improve the lives of consumers. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, to, to quote the philosopher Kanye West, uh, you know, <laughs> Well, one of my favorite lines of his, and I have many, is that uh, so many people are afraid to fail that they don't even try. And fortunately for me, I've failed so many times that it really doesn't impact me or my psyche as much as, you know, it may somebody else who's encountering failure for the first time. So, you know, I, I do think it's that, that it's critical um, and, and, you know, an even better way to say it is, especially in, I dealt with it a lot in real estate, um, given the um, archaicness um, and and the resistance to learning. I wouldn't say learning new things, but adopting new technologies, doing anything new is is intimidating, uh, and I and I empathize with that. Um, but really, to innovate or to do anything differently in a better way, you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, and, and I think a lot of people think that they want to innovate or think that they want to, um, you know, do something differently as it relates to brand or tech. But there's a very big difference between wanting to do it and actually being able to, to go through with it um, and knowing that there, that, that uncertainty lies ahead. Yeah, that's great. And, and probably the first Kanye quote in our podcast series. Um, yeah, I might, I might, I'll, I'll probably drop a couple more throughout this podcast, to be honest with you. That's so good. We'll see. Um, for everyone at home, we are we are also recording in an empty stadium with a crew, uh, just like Kanye West. And we'll have a listening party afterwards. Yeah, I, am, I am sleeping at the United Center. So perfect. There you go. Well, well Michael, on the, on the note of brand, uh, Kanye being his own brand himself, um, I want to jump into that a little bit, right? So what Jake and I really appreciate appreciate about you and, and see not only your, your tech expertise, but your brand expertise is how you foresee brand in real estate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for most people, they see it as a logo where for you, you really understand the true nature of brand and what that can represent in the world of real estate. 
How do you think in your personal, you know, your, your mind, what role does brand play in real estate itself? So I think um, ever since these D2C direct-to-consumer brands have become really prevalent in the past few years, uh, especially with like, you know, Warby Parker, GoPro, Dollar Shave Club, Away Travel, um, brand has really started to um, become uh, widely understood as something that is almost required for consumer-facing products, right? Um, and as it relates to, to real estate, I think that there's a couple of different ra- ways you, you can look at it or you could split it up. One is multifamily, so obviously apartments and, and long-term stay. Uh, the other is hotel, um, where consumers uh, will be much more reliant upon brand when making a decision. If you're visiting a city for the first time and you're uh, always you know, staying at the Hoxton or you've stayed at the Ace a lot, right, and one of those exists there, you're going to make your decision based off of that. Whereas with an apartment brand, just because it's a related building or just because it's, you know, a gray star building or, you know, some, some other, you know, uh, national developer doesn't hold as much weight because there's a lot of other factors that go into your decision, considering that you're staying at this place for a little bit longer time than you would typically stay at a hotel. And then, then there's obviously short-term stay and, and all these other things. Um, brand in real estate, uh, is nothing if the founders and the people operating the business uh, don't believe in the values that they, that you know the brand and the mission statement and everything that you know is stated in the brand book upholds. In the sense that uh, it's very easy to say that you want to build a community or that uh, you know you're inclusive and welcoming and that you want everybody to stay connected and you want it to feel more like, um, you know, a network in a club versus just a place that you live. Those are just like in life, things things are always easier to say than to actually do. Um, But, you know, the brand goes beyond much more than just a pretty logo or uh, having a brand book. It's something that the the leadership team needs to live. And I think, uh, you know, you had uh, Hasier on uh, from Ori last week and in his own apartment, he has his products, right? Um, that is critical. If you're the founder of a company and, and you created, you know, these products that you claim to have such a substantial impact on these people's lives and you, you're not even using them on your own, then, you know, that speaks volumes about not only what the consumer may perceive, but also what your own employees perceive. Um, yeah, so, that's, so that's I, crazy. I mean, I, let's just take a pause for a second. That's something I never thought about before that almost every group that we work with and every group that we know of, like, I don't know the scenario where the founder is living in the space or right. consuming the product on a regular basis. I do know of, you know, like, you know, our, our former business partner and good friend, Alex Samuel, Samuelovich, who has an office in, in one of his communities. And so like, you know, they're very much parallel communities. And I think that's probably the closest that I've seen, but you're, you're dead on. Like no one really consumes their product. Right. And, and, you know, it could, uh, obviously so many buildings today are, are amenity focused and community focused on all of these things. But what people tend to forget is that, um, the time, uh, and things that customers truly remember the most and, and what they will be most actionable upon are the negative experiences. So, you know, it could be great to have an awesome amenity room or a dope pool. Right. But if your package room is always a shit show if your property management team is impossible to get a hold of, if there's always leaks in your hallway, right? 
if you're not living in the building for at least a small amount of time and you can't experience how difficult it is to get a hold of property management or how often your parking space is occupied by somebody else's car, all of the other things, you're, yeah, you'll see a nice pool, but that's pretty much it. You need to experience the pain points that your customers and consumers are experiencing. And I'm not saying, uh, you know, Alex needs to live in his units, but there does need to be an infrastructure set up on that back end to where, you know, you can get feedback and truly understand your customer more so than just like, hey, shoot us an email with your complaints or here's a monthly survey. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, we always say like when residents have complaints, I feel like they're just sending them into a black box. They're not going anywhere. And half the time they're either not resolved or if they're resolved, that it doesn't answer their, their core issue. Um, it's interesting. Michael, I'm curious, in your opinion, you know, kind of on this topic of brand, like apart from X, who else, you know, that you've come across um, fits this consumer product in the world of real estate? Yeah. Like so, yeah. So um, since Alex was just brought up, I'll give Flats a lot of props. And I know you guys were intimately involved with with Flats and Lively and, and you know, the Flats brand is probably the best lifestyle brand in, in Chicago in terms of real estate and, and multifamily. Um, they were definitely ahead of their time. Um, and aesthetically, I mean, it's it's a very beautiful brand. And I know you guys had a big hand in that. Um, in terms of actual, actual consumer-facing brands, I, I think it's challenging. Um, I think Europe... There's a lot of brands in Europe that do an incredible job. And and the, the reason why I, I really focus on the word consumer is because, you know, again, it could be a very pretty brand. And, and there's a lot of uh, companies in the U.S. that would be good examples of this where, you know, short term stay, for example, uh, you have uh, common, you have uh, who else do you have? Um, Central. I forget the the other one that was uh, was it Ali? Um, there, there's a couple of short term stay brands that manage properties, right? Um, that they don't necessarily own, but they manage the properties, and you know they have the apartments uh, listed on Apartments.com, Zillow, whatever else. But nobody from a consumer standpoint is saying I want to live in a common property. They may not even know that the property that they're in is a common property, right? Because Common's the property management company, but Common has a, a great brand itself. Consumer facing brands, I think what's critical and the reason why you really, you know, want to focus and spend a lot of energy and time on building a brand is because you want the consumer to make a decision based off the brand. Right. Um, so, you know, there are like Noy Escape, Mason Fifth, uh, Juno are, are some really good examples of, of brands that I think do a really good job. Um, I think another interesting concept, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but Eleven, the nightclub in Miami recently launched uh, a concept for their own, I think, I think it's a combination of hotels and condos. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, from what I last heard, they were like 95% pre-sold. Um, and obviously it combines the, the nightclub lifestyle element, which Eleven has, they have that brand recognition and they actually partnered with PMG on this development. Uh, but I think, you know, you're going to start seeing a lot of collaboration between uh, lifestyle brands and real estate brands as opposed to real estate brands just trying to become consumer brands. And, and I'll give a nod to the fashion industry on that one. I think that they have totally nailed and set the precedent for uh, collaboration, but also uh, the concept of pop-up shops, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's going to be another prevalent and predominant concept in the real estate space moving forward. 
Um, I think another good example is like Eight Sleep. Uh, not sure if you guys are familiar, but they're smart mattresses that uh, optimize for sleep. They uh, essentially will cool down or heat up based on your sleep patterns. And it's it's an incredible product. So many professional athletes use it. And they recently partnered with, uh, is it, uh, I, I think it was SLS Hotels, uh, or no, it was SBE in Miami, where there are literally suites in the SBE hotel that have the eight sleep mattresses. And these aren't cheap mattresses. I think they're like 2,800 bucks at the cheapest. Um, but, you know, in terms of the SBE hotel collection, you could book suites with these eight sleep mattresses, which I think is just an incredible concept. So Michael, you know, one thing I find really interesting about, about you as an individual is you're, you really are a consumer of, of brands, right? Even the way you dress to the way you speak to the, to the, you know, companies you partner with. I want to go off that earlier point you made. Why, like, why doesn't multifamily or why hasn't multifamily really tapped into those those partnerships? Like, why don't they try to find to get like the Off-White, the Apple, the Sonos, the Ubers like plugged in to the properties or into the minds of the consumers where it's not just a place that, you know, you live, but there's so much more there that that the consumers can feed off of and tap into. Yeah, definitely. I I think that there is um, a, a lot of challenges created by the, the natural fragmentation of the space. Um, so if you look at the space in general, right, one, you have such a long timeline from, um, you know, land acquisition to breaking ground to construction to lease up. Um, you're talking years for, for some and most assets. The other is uh, you have fragmentation in terms of the parties involved. So uh, you have uh, a, a general contractor, you have the, uh, you know, the designers, you have the architects, you have all these different players, you have the, um, you know, installers and integrators, who a lot of people rely on, or, you know, developers rely on to make their technological decisions and, and create that infrastructure. And then you have third party property management companies, which honestly, I, I believe to be the the biggest inhibitor when it comes to um, brand and customer experience and, you know, not Inter interesting. to... Interesting. Why, why is that? Um, so property managers, one, I'll, I'll start off by saying they probably have the most thankless job in the world um, just because they really only get acknowledgement when something is going wrong and in the building and, and not going well. Um, the second that, you know, they may do something well, something bad happens and it's typically not as a result of their performance or something that they did. It's just the natural habitat of living in an apartment building um, and having just so many moving parts. But I, I will say that I, I fundamentally believe that something that needs to be solved is the relationship between the, the, the developer owner and the third party property manager. A lot of people talk about improving the relationship between the, the property owner and the consumer, which would be the tenant, which I think is um, a totally flawed uh, way of thinking about it because the owner has minimal interaction with the tenant. It's the property manager that communicates and engages the prospect and the tenant far more than the owner does. So if you look at it, um, say you're an owner and you've gone through a branding process with a, a, a great branding agency and you have a brand book, you have all these internal and fundamental values, right? And uh, you, know, you have essentially what is a playbook for how you treat your customer, how you respond to your customer, what, what type of language you use. Um, 
And then you open up a new asset and it's a third party property management company that's managing the asset. And there's a couple of issues with the property management system, the way that it's currently laid out. One is that their incentive and, you know, you could call it their, their payment structure is not, is not optimized for, um, you know, quality performance. It's more so optimized towards just quantity in general. So if a property agent is, you know, getting commission off of every lease signed and they're not just getting um, a base salary, then what you're going to have happen most of the time is somebody's going to come in for a tour, they're going to take a tour, and then they're just going to be inundated with text messages and emails and phone calls from the agent because they're so persistent because they want that lease, which you can't really blame them for. Um, And then on the opposite side of the spectrum, you have leasing agents and property managers that uh, are not commission-based, they're flat salaried. So regardless of whether they get a lease signed or not, they're getting paid and there really isn't a big difference there. Um, so, you know, and, and th- that doesn't optimize obviously for performance and they give lackadaisical tours and, and they may not give uh, the performance, if you want to call it that, that, you know, they, th- that they really need to give. And then lastly, I'll say that it is um, the perception of the relationship. So property managers know that, you know, I'll use X as an example, just because, you know, you guys know them, they're a big property uh, owner operator, and they really are thriving and, and pushing to, to improve these things, which I give them a lot of credit for, is that property managers don't feel like they're an employee of the developer owner. They feel like I've spoken with them about this, because, you know, we tried and, and, you know, to figure out different ways to really structure these things. They feel much more like a, a, a car salesman or, a, you know, some sort of uh, involvement third party role that is completely detached from the ownership group. So what ends up happening is that these people don't feel like they have skin in the game, right? Which, which is a big problem. They need to feel like they have skin in the game. They need to feel like they're an employee of X and not an employee of another property manager or anything else. They feel like an outcast almost. And what ends up happening, and a great example is you could have the best digital presence in the world. You could have the best looking website. You could have the best app. You could ha- you know, say all the right things on social media. Then when somebody goes online to book a tour, when they come in for that tour, if it is not a great experience, if it doesn't match the expectation that they have that was created by everything that you said online, then you're losing them as any chance that you had at getting them as a customer. Right. So I think that's what people really don't get is that it starts digitally. It starts online. But in order to really um, convert that prospect into a consumer, you need to hit every single step of the process. And that really does include the property management team because they handle the tours, they handle the leasing, they handle the communication. And they also are pretty much the primary factor in whether that person is going to re-sign that lease or not. So I, you know, it's, it's interesting and it's, it's, it's unique, right? Like this, this scenario where you have the owner who um, has so much control over the product and then you release the product into the wild and the customer experience team and the support team are an entirely different company, um, yep. not necessarily born from the ethos of, of the brand or the developer. That doesn't really, I don't know if that exists in any other industry as purely as it does in real estate. Um, given what you said about multifamily moving closer to hospitality in terms of brand and brand experience, like 
how do you solve for the scenario of the handoff to property manager where the property manager is presenting a, a hospitality like experience um, you know closer to what you get when you're when you're in a hotel yeah so I, I think the way to to look at it is obviously one like you start with the incentive structure um, the way that the current property management is, and especially agent uh, incentive structure is you know created and deployed um, it's not optimized for performance and relationship, right? Uh, I think, you know, one of the things a lot of on-site agents talk about that are a part of a third-party property management company is that they really want the opportunity to eventually work for that owner developer in uh, an actual, you know, corporatized role, if you want to call it that, right? They look at it as like a ladder and, hey, if I bust my ass and I perform well, is there a chance that you know, I'll be rewarded by going to work for, you know, this owner operator and having, you know, a role that is far beyond just being a property agent. Um, because, you know, if you look at a lot of agents uh, in general, especially, you know, in multifamily in Chicago, a lot of them are like kids that are in college, right? Or, or just fresh out of college and they're working multiple jobs. They're ambitious. They work hard. They're just really not given the necessary tools or guidance uh, to, execute the role in a way that they truly want to. Um, I don't think any of them intentionally want to do bad, but just the way that the environment is set up, like it's really not designed for them to succeed um, unless like it's a combination of just like luck and, you know, figuring it out. Um, so I, I think a lot of it starts with, with the structure and the relationship. You need to make the property team feel like they are not only a part of the company, but everything that you're doing, they need to buy into and and believe. Um, and then, you know, I, I also think it comes down to, you know, little things as well. Like, I don't think you, you need to do all of these drastic implementations, but like little things like swag, like, oh, you have this cool brand, like give the property team like hoodies and shirts and whatever else with, you know, your logo on it and whatever. So when they're giving the tours, like it's, you know, they, they feel like, you know, they're wearing like a team jersey versus like, oh, they have to come in and, you know, what Andrew's wearing right now, looking like he's going to go participate on America's Got Talent, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, you know, I, 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 think, I think that that's part of it. But I also think that there, there may be a little bit of, um, you know, uh, a flawed, a flawed or desired imagination or way of thinking from a property owner uh, operator standpoint in the sense that, uh, yeah, it would be awesome to become more like a hotel in terms of how consumers make their decision. But the reality is there are a couple of fundamental factors that probably will never change when it comes to people deciding where they're going to live. And a couple of those include price. They include location. They include, uh, you know, the, the surrounding community and access to transportation to get to their jobs. Are people really going to make a decision because you have a fucking golf simulator in your building? No, they're not. They're not. Um, and like, I, I know some people hate to hear that, but like, that's just the truth. Uh, at the end of the day, people want their lives, like they want to do anything they, that they can to make their lives easier. And this is like one of my, my big principles when it comes to technology is that you have to focus on the need to haves and not the nice to haves. Because right. that's where consumers make their decision. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
it's a challenge for sure. <laughs> I think uh, I think we agree in in a lot of ways, and um, I think that you know the the shiny gems of the golf simulators. Uh, maybe maybe they capture a few people in in their trap, and and people decide to move in, but it's certainly not going to drive retention and and loyalty, which is really you know where where the value is. Um, yeah, and I also I, I also say you know you're seeing a really big shift um, in terms of mentality from uh, owner operators, even managers where like they want to make the entire uh, prospect and resident experience humanless to where there is no human involved in the process at all. And they want to bring in, you know, these quote unquote AI, I won't even call them AI, but bots. Right. Um, And in certain situation, right. Like, Bots or uh, humanless, you know, interaction is wanted by the consumer. For example, if I'm going to go tour a building, like if it could be uh, a self-guided tour and I could do it myself without an agent standing next to me the entire time, I'd probably prefer it then. But if I'm having a maintenance issue in my building, the last thing I want to do is talk to an automated bot that is just suggesting articles to me or, you know, giving me an email to, you know, contact, Right. Um, I, I do think they're in, you know, I think the doorman is, is one of them. I think you're seeing so many buildings, uh, now go doormanless, uh, when in reality, they're not necessarily evaluating the fallout in the, the different touch points that you may not necessarily think of if there isn't a doorman. So you don't have a doorman there. Okay. People could get in with a fob or their phone or whatever, but then think about all of these buildings now that have package rooms right? They use package lockers and all these things. And you're seeing it literally in every building. The package delivery guy gets there, scans in, and then he goes into this locker room and he sees 300 lockers in there. And he's like, yo, he's like, I've done my job. The packages are at the building. I'm not taking an hour and a half and opening up all of these lockers and putting them in there. So they're throwing the packages in there. And what happens? Package room becomes a shit show. Packages get stolen. Consumers complain, right? But if you had a doorman on site there, that could not, they don't need to watch over the package delivery guy, but the package delivery guy knows, hey, there's somebody watching and they're going to end up putting the packages in the lockers. You see it all of the time. Same with, you know, uh, safety issues. When you have somebody on site there, it deters a lot more problems than it creates in terms of, you know, the negative uh, expense that it has on the overall value of your asset. So I do think that, you know, human experience and human touch points are critical and cannot be replaced when it comes to certain things. So, um, yeah, yeah, I'm not a fan of, you know, replacing everything with, with bots or, you know, just, you know, total humanless, uh, behavior, because I I do think people want that. And and the certain things that they do want when they have issues, they want answers and, and solutions and things to be resolved right away. Michael, to that point, um, you know, one thing that Jake and I are seeing, and, and probably something you're you're starting to see as well, is this idea of this singular asset class is you know gradually becoming more and more obsolete. Uh, I know, you know, personally, we see more and more concepts, and I put that in air quotes, that expand beyond an apartment, an office, a retail space, so on and so forth. Like, what are your thoughts on where all this is headed? And I know you kind of touch on it, where it's becoming very virtual, AI driven, robot driven. But where where is this like mixed use to the extreme um, going? Yeah, so um, obviously with COVID and, and everything that's happened in the past couple of years, 
it's impossible to say whether work from home will forever be a thing or whether people are going to go back to the office. So I won't, I really won't even, you know, touch on, touch on that, but what I will touch on and what I do think is, um, uh, an outcome and, and, and thing that is going to be around for a while, regardless of whether COVID's over tomorrow or whether it, you know, sticks around for a little bit, is that companies are going to become much more flexible in terms of uh, coming to the office. It could be a couple of days a week, it could be a couple hours a week, it could be a couple hours a day. But I, I definitely think there's going to be a big um, change in terms of the traditional five day, eight, nine hour workday, all in office. So I do think you're going to start seeing and you are seeing people um, either work from their apartment, apartment building or a co-working space. I actually had a conversation with a few people this past weekend who work for some big time companies and like they were praising WeWork, right? Which, which like is, you know, comical to think about like a, a year from, uh, you know, now or a year ago from now, everybody was saying WeWork is, you know, on its demise and it's, it's going to be gone. Um, but you know, you're seeing a lot with the co-working spaces. Uh, I think CEO WeWork said they're back to pre-pandemic levels or pre-pandemic numbers. Um, but I, I think you know, a lot of developers and owners, especially on like the more you know traditional side, older side that have been around for a while, have just started taking their their designers and architects to places like Soho House and saying, "Hey, like copy this shit." Like just copy it, right? <laughs> right? And they think that that's going to translate to the magic of Soho House. And I'm a I'm a member at Soho House. I love Soho House. I, I can't speak more highly of it um, in terms of the community and the people that belong there and the people that you meet and things like that. But just because you have a gym that mirrors Soho House's gym, or you have um, uh, an amenity bar space that mirrors Soho House's there's no correlation. There's no guarantee that you're going to have this same vibe and brand awareness and identity that Soul House does. Um, and a lot of buildings you're starting to see have these amenity spaces that are incredible, right? They have, uh, you know, bar type spaces on the top floor that could literally become a commercialized bar that operates as a business because they're so well done and so beautiful. Here's the problem though is that 99% of these amenity spaces don't have a bartender. They don't even have, you know, they don't even have drink. They don't have, so it's like you're going to, it's like, think about it from an opposite standpoint. It's like going to a restaurant space and there's no bartenders, there's no servers, there's no, there's no service. So it's definitely a combination of the two um, that you need to meet. And I, I think it's really challenging. So, you know, from a hospitality standpoint, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I, I could see Soho House getting into apartments. Um, for instance, they have hotels here in Chicago. And if they were to say, if they were to come out, you know, next month and say, hey, we're taking X amount of these hotel rooms and turning them into apartments, I'd be, I'd be the first one on the list, right? If I could live there, that would be super dope. But again, like there's a reason why you look at their S1 from when they filed for their IPO, they've never turned a profit. It's very difficult business to operate, big overhead expenses, and it's just hard to succeed and, and sustain. So, you know, I, I do think that you're, we're going to start seeing other things that, that may be, uh, a, that may be much easier to implement on a much smaller scale. So for example, um, you know, podcasting studios, right. Um, I think that, uh, not only do, are they, you know, not a million dollars to implement, but you could bring in, um, you know, say you have a Chicago asset and you put in a podcast studio research, you know, the top 
500 podcasts in Chicago, right? Find those people and say, hey, we will give you free rental space in the podcast studio. There's cameras, high quality audio. You can invite your guests in. All you need to do is open up the podcast by saying, hey, guys, blah, 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 uh, coming to you live from blah, blah, blah building in on Green Street, right? That's free recognition. You're providing a value to the people who are doing the podcast. You're getting free brand awareness. And it's really something that is not that difficult to execute. And it's a very easy way to, uh, you know, cross market with other people in the space. Same thing goes with fitness. So like you look at like Gymshark, who does an incredible, incredible job with influencers. You look at Lululemon, you look at Peloton, um, you know, rather than just going and buying a bunch of Pelotons from a, a third party, uh, you know, dealer, right? Go directly to Peloton and say, hey, let's do a branded building together. Or, you know, rather than, you know, if you have a co-working space, obviously, you know, you guys use Zoom a lot. Uh, if you're going to have conference rooms with video conferencing, don't go to Logitech or go to a third-party distributor. Go directly to Zoom and say, hey, let's have Zoom branded rooms with Zoom conferencing devices. And we are will be known as the building that you can come to that is fully integrated with Zoom. And you could have your Zoom meetings here. And, you know, it, it, People will use that and look at that as a really big incentive. And then, you know, lastly, I think people are super passionate about pets, their dogs, right? Their cats, whatever they have. And if you can, you know, you could obviously do simple partnerships with uh, Waggy and other, you know, dog wag or uh, whatever dog walking services or even like, uh, you know, dog bats, uh, better, uh, you know, dog parks and things like that. Uh, I think could get interesting. I, I don't think it needs to be a fundamental overhaul of you know your your business operations and the way that you operate. But I, I do think that there are a lot of little things that owners and operators can do to drastically improve the the customer experience and also you know their their brand awareness as well. Couldn't agree more, man. It's awesome. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you touched on so much that we care about. It's like don't come into mixed use just to have an office like a co working space for your residents come in with a brand essence and think about like, what are the spaces that are intentional for the people who you're trying to target um, as a consumer segment? I think I'm hearing that from you, number one. Number two, I'm hearing from you, don't try to you know emulate what these multi hundred million dollar, billion dollar um, super focused companies do. Try to partner with them because that way you're building a mosaic of brands that your consumer thinks is part of their lifestyle already. And um, you're, you're making it clear that you're speaking directly to, to the consumer, uh, to what they care about, what they need. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I will say that there's so much happening in, in multifamily and in real estate in general. Um, and, and if you look at the space, you have a bunch of different things happening. You have this whole hospitality mentality um, that's entered, but now you have a really big tech mentality as well. Um, so you have uh, traditional real estate guys who are dealing with an influx um, and also like all of this buzziness of prop tech of this new, you know, technology that apparently um, is supposed to improve your residence life, improve your prospect conversion, improve uh, your brand identity, improve the value of the asset. You're getting all these different things thrown at you. Then you're hearing this hospitality stuff where it's like, all right, like, you know, not only can it potentially also improve your NOI, but it'll make you cool as well, right? And there's so much noise, right? And I empathize with um, a lot of the owner operators because they they do want to 
like do the right thing most of them most of the time in in terms of like you know providing a good experience for their customer improving back end operations but you know there's that old saying um it, if you you know go back to the 2000 early 2000s uh Allen Iverson type days where it was like all basketball players want to be rappers and all rappers want to be basketball players it's like all <laughs> real estate owner operators want to be tech or hospitality guys and all tech or hospitality guys want to be real estate owner operators or developers and the reality is that like as a guy up until a year and a half ago that was solely tech solely like building startups and just like kind of like breaking shit and like doing things like off the cuff right um if i were to come into real estate and say oh i want to build this prop tech product product to improve your life and improve your tenant's life the owner operators are going to look at me and be like well did you think about the third party property manager because as a tech guy since i have no exposure i didn't even know third party property managers were a thing right and then as an owner operator trying to build tech or implement all of this tech uh you know you could have guys who or guys or girls who you know think that they know tech better than you know they actually do so they end up building a product that doesn't have the fundamental basics that are required for building a usable software product so uh i think the answer at the end of the day is that it's a marriage between a real estate person and a tech person it can't just be a real estate person going into tech or a tech person going into real estate uh i think it has to be a marriage because there's uh knowledge that really uh is required to succeed in both that you really only learn from firsthand experience and going through the trenches as opposed to you know reading a bunch of white papers or blogs online and saying i understand what a property manager goes through like no there are so many uh things on the back end that are not visible uh that you truly don't know exist or to look out for unless you've experienced it firsthand yeah that's great uh as a segue into a topic that we really want want to cover a little bit more and uh, i was going to make a joke about you know your alan iverson comment and just transition by saying speaking of ai we've got some tech topics to, to talk about but i'll save you from the dad <laughs> joke um but you know you covered it well you covered it well right it's 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 a weird thing and andrew and i experienced it firsthand uh you have a bunch of real estate people who are going into tech and then you have a bunch of tech people who are going into real estate and it's almost like if you haven't served in both roles um i think more in over indexed towards tech then you're not going to actually create value for either the consumer or the property manager or the developer or whomever you're you're serving um so i think you you definitely you definitely nailed that one for sure um but speaking of prop tech you know, you've built some pretty badass prop tech in the past. You, you you have a keen eye for what consumers actually care about, and to us, that looks like convenience, which you, which you talked about, regular utility, and then second, it's staying in the know of what's happening in the community. Um, those two things we think are are pivotal, and I've we independently, you know, not not even chatting with you about this, we've seen you kind of gravitate towards those as well. Um, so with that background, like what, what are people getting right in prop tech and what are people getting wrong? So prop tech is, it's interesting because I, you know, obviously there's a lot of needs and, and products that are doing well in commercial that wouldn't translate or even, uh, you know, be adaptable to multifamily. 
but in terms of, of multifamily prop tech, I think uh, there are there are a couple of concepts or companies that are really doing an, an incredible job. I think Open Path is one of them. Uh, you know, forever you had uh, key fobs, you had you know the mobile phone unlock where you take the phone and you hold it up to the door. And and my argument with the mobile phone holding it up to the door was that it's the same as a fob. The only difference is that a fob is more reliable um, because you know up until about a year ago all of the mobile access control was server on site. So uh, if you were in the elevator uh, and, you know, your, your lock was on your phone, if you didn't have service, your lock didn't work, right? It was a total pain point. Then OpenPath came out, um, you know, with this technology where you didn't need to take your phone out of your pocket as long as it was somewhere on your body. All you had to do is wave your hand in front of the reader and the door unlocked. And the one thing that, uh, well, that is a huge differentiator and, you know, they were just acquired by Motorola. So they're, they're a monster and they're just killing it. Um, the, the amount that they've scaled in the past three years is just unbelievable. Um, but if you also look at it, one thing that they really did well was they opened up their API and they had a really good SDK. Uh, so I, I think, you know, one of the, the fundamental, uh, things holding back innovation in multifamily are the property management software systems that were, you know, initially built 30, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, and, you know, these companies by, you know, their nature are closed off. So they either don't have an open API or if they do, they charge you, you know, $25,000 per API per year, um, which is just a natural inhibitor to innovation in the sense that you have, Here's an example. You have all of these incredible virtual tour uh, programs and technologies and visualization tools that exist. You have all these incredible tour schedulers that exist. You have all these incredible ILS channel management tools that exist, right? But hardly any of them are seamlessly integrated with the various property management softwares that are out there. And if you talk to any property management company, one of their fundamental requirements when it comes to new technology is that all of the information is autonomously transferred back to the resident guest card that lives in the property management software system because that is used for the finances that's used for accounting that's used for maintenance that's used for repairs and these property teams already have so many freaking dashboards open as it is you have a pms you have a third-party crm you have access control you have maintenance you have all these different things that like i said earlier it's almost designed for them to fail in the sense that any person, I don't care how smart you are or how much bandwidth you have, operating off 10 different dashboards on your screen, you're bound to forget one of them one time because you're dealing with so much stuff, whether it's from a prospect, existing resident, they have someone in their parking spot, whatever it may be. So uh, I think that, you know, while there are a lot of prop tech companies that are doing great things, I think that one, uh, the lack of, focus when it comes to full seamless integration with all the different systems uh, is a problem and will continue to be. Another one is that I think a lot of companies are putting the cart too far ahead of the horse in the sense of they're coming out with this innovative, crazy tech with, you know, out even conquering the basic needs first. If you look at a lot of buildings, they don't ha even have SMS communication management, but yet you're, yeah, but yet you're going to come out with a tool that like allows your residents to, you know, do some like do something absolutely crazy that like sounds cool but like won't really have a big impact on their life 
So, you know, you, you read any tenant property management resident survey from whether it's Buildium or any of the other really good white papers, the, the top desires and, and needs from residents every year when it comes to tech, it, it's the same two things, right? It's transparency and communication, and it's the ability to communicate seamlessly via SMS or email, right? And those are also the things that literally correlate to customer service and customer satisfaction, which then directly correlate to customer LTV. Do they resign their lease or not? And, uh, you know, kind of going back to that point of putting the cart too far ahead of the horse, like a lot of this stuff is really cool. It's really dope. But like the things that the people really remember are the things that make their life a lot easier. And they'll say, hey, uh, you know, well, it was nice to walk in and, and there was a wink dashboard in my building, which there is where I live right now. Um, but it's I've never used it because it's, you know, terrible. Um, I'd much rather have uh, like the seamless ability to directly communicate with my management team at my building. Um, you know, if I have a friend coming over or if I have a package downstairs or if, you know, there's an issue with my faucet. So, uh, you know, while there are a lot of things that are doing really well and doing some great things, I think the the basics still need to be conquered. Um, And I think that also, you know, kind of touching on it, there's other holes as well. They're not really being um, acknowledged, which could come down to data and analytics. um, And then also just making the property management team's life easier as well. Yeah. I, yeah. Amen to all of that. Um, so what does it, I, what does it say about, you know, the state of prop tech that, um, the actual jobs to be done, like that, the nature of the need of the consumer, those things are still kind of fair game. And there's not a lot that exists that, um, communicate to those needs, but all of these other bells and whistles are, are where, you know, there's a hockey stick growth in venture funding. And there's this overwhelming new category of SPACs and, all of this hype, um, but we're not serving the actual needs of the consumers. Like where, right. why does this gap exist and what does it say about what's coming? Yeah. So I think, I think if you look at a lot of the successful prop tech companies, um, the one thing that they all have in common is that their leadership came from, uh, the real estate world. Um, and they saw a lot of these issues. Um, I, and if you look at the companies that are doing things that, you know, might be cool or might have, um, a lot of traction early on that might die off and not be sustainable. I'll compare it to uh, having a desire to own a restaurant. If you talk to, you know, RJ Melman, who's the CEO of Let Us uh, Entertain You, right? Uh, and you say, hey, what was your come up like? You know, obviously his, his dad is an absolute legend in the space. And, you know, I'll give RJ a lot of credit. Like he was handed nothing and he busted his ass to get to this point. But he'll tell you, he'll say, I wasn't just like handed the keys to a restaurant and was allowed to like run it and own it. He had to start out as a busboy. Then he had to start out in the back of the kitchen. Then he had started as a server. Then he had to start out as a bartender. And then he had to start as a, uh, an assistant general manager of a restaurant. Then he had to be a GM. In order to truly understand and build either build a product or operate, you know, something as complex as a multifamily building, you really need to understand the ins and outs of the operations and all of the different touch points. So you may know that a vendor or maintenance repair guy comes through the, you know, the back door at this hour, and these are the necessary things that they need, right? But you also need to understand prop, the property management operation as well, 
right? Who on the property management team do you speak to? Who makes those decisions? Same things go for the integrators and installers. A lot of people think that, you know, a prop tech company, they'll go and sell to the owner of a building. But what they don't realize is most owners are hands off when it comes to PMSs or third-party CRMs. They usually just rely on a third-party property management company, right? Or if it's access control, they rely on the integrator or installer. But if you talk to most integrators or installers, again, no knock on them, but they're, it's not really, I mean, it's not really their job to uh, stay up to date on the most innovative, incredible technologies or access control systems that you can integrate. Um, it's their job to, from a hardware standpoint, install everything correctly, make sure it runs seamlessly, right? So, you know, you don't necessarily, very, again, very owners are hands off. So uh, by understanding the pain points of the property management company, understanding what incentives and what drives them to make decisions when it comes to products that they use or why they use them. And then also the integrators and installers and understanding that sales process. That's, you know, the most fundamental part. Um, but, you know, as it relates to the tech, I think that, again, the reason why we're not seeing a lot of simplistic solutions being built is one, the lack of integration and two, it's the lack of communication, their relationship between the, the real estate people and the technology people. Dude, spot on, man. I mean, Jake and I can talk about that for hours, especially uh, during our time at Lively. I mean, we saw so much of that while we were there and uh, still see it today talking to property managers and owners. Um, good stuff. So, Michael, curious. I mean, we, we know you. Uh, we know your success. We know everything you've achieved. What's next? Uh, what's next? It's always the million-dollar question, regardless of what point of my life I'm in, uh, or what aspect of my life you're talking about. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I'll say right now I'm working on, um, a, a prop tech startup that, you know, we're in stealth mode. Um, I'm, I'm really lucky to have a strong technical co-founder. Um, and you know, we're, we're building a lot of the things that, uh, you know, kind of, we touched on in this conversation, not necessarily as it relates to product or feature, but as it relates to usability, user experience on both the front end and back end. And, and also just, you know, um, you know, development and architecture type uh, philosophy as it relates to building seamless, simple products very quickly that seamlessly integrate. And, um, you know, they're easily, uh, you know, I'll, I'll go uh, with the term intuitive in the sense that, again, I think a lot of issues with existing prop tech softwares and technologies is that they try to reinvent the wheel versus, you know, if you're building a SMS managing tool, right? Make it identical to iMessage. People know what it is. They know how to use it. You don't need to reinvent the wheel with all of these, you know, different, you know, technical or, or jargon type terms that people aren't going to understand or, you know, this user interface that takes hours to, to learn. So, um, you know, that that's kind of where we're spending our time. And then I'm obviously doing a, a lot of different consulting with owners, operators, managers, and developers. Um, but yeah, always, always building, always, you know, trying to, to see where we can, uh, create, you know, uh, much needed solutions while also, uh, keeping my, my hand actively, uh, in the, the tech and NBC world with, with Mark as well. That's awesome, man. We'll, we'll keep your pulse on the, on the prop tech world. Definitely keep your pulse on what's happening in real estate. Uh, I don't want to speak for Jake, but dude, good luck with that new venture. I'd, I can't think of a better person other than yourself to uh, take that on. Um, so, yeah, luck. no, and I, I, I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I obviously just want to say, um, 
in, in all my years, you know, being in software and being in that world. And then obviously coming over to multifamily, I've worked with a lot of different creatives and designers and uh, just people all over the map and uh, the experience working with you guys and, and the, the product and, and content and everything that, you know, you guys have created for us over time. It's far and ahead the, the best experience I had, uh, the best uh, product quality I've seen and nothing's better than working with a partner um, to where you could really just be hands off, let them do their thing. And, you know, you completely trust them. And at the end of the day, you get delivered something incredibly dope. Uh, and you guys obviously surprised us in a great way every time. So, um, you know, I know we're going to work uh, together a lot more in the future, but I just want to put it out there that you guys are on uh, on the path to, to building something exceptional. And, you know, as always, two of the most talented dudes I know. So it's always a pleasure to catch up. Thank you, buddy. We're, you so uh, we're humbled. So we, we really appreciate it. Um, well, Michael, dude, thanks again. Uh, let's not be strangers. We know how to find you. Uh, you're, you're an absolute wealth of knowledge. So, uh, this industry is lucky to have someone like yourself. So until next time. All right, guys. Thanks, Michael. Thanks guys. Thanks again for listening to the no contest podcast. For more information, make sure to follow us on social media or check us out at nowalls.studio.